Let me show you how it's done. Hi, folks. We are back. It is 2023. We took a little bit of a hiatus for the holidays and all that good stuff to rest and recuperate so we can continue to bring this high quality podcast to you. Now, today, to get started, I wanted to talk a little bit about some housekeeping things. So as a part of this podcast, what's really been excellent is that it's helped Tam and I really kind and kind of be in our own personal businesses. And as a a part of that, we're booked and busy. And actually, it's one of those things that is a a really delightful thing to happen. But it also means that as we started to reflect on our priorities for this year, that we needed to to, to take this podcast from a weekly podcast to a monthly podcast. Keeping in mind the fact that there probably will be like some bonus episodes or bonus content that happen in different periods of time. But what we are 100% committing to is coming back to you each month with a great topic, potentially a great guest, and talking about this product business strategy and what we can be doing differently. Um, Happy New Year. So it's so funny because uh, I think we've said it many times that Tam and I just kind of back and forth when we send each other articles and stuff like that. And so it, it breeds all these different conversations. And one of the ones that really came up recently was this conversation around I generated content and whether it's going to actually replace writers, whether it's going to replace humans essentially in this process. And it's very fascinating because I think we said it before, and I fundamentally think that the human stories that people are going to still most connect with, like Avatar, I don't think an AI tool would come up with Avatar. And I just recently saw the new one. And also, you know, I was going to cry up in Avatar, and I'm real pissed about that because I don't, I'm like one of those people who cries love tears. So don't, like, it don't even feel right. I'm like, what is going on? What is this weird moisture that's on my face that's coming down here? But, you know, it, it was one of those things that was so gut-wrenching in some ways that was very interesting. And so that human element is very fascinating to me. But of course, Tam, I know that you have some, some other ideas about what the type of content would look like and et cetera. So especially with ChatGPT, what do you think? It's already here. Previously, we talked about Netflix and their existential growth problems and what they're trying to do to solve it. I mentioned at that point that they should incorporate some AI tools to help them make content. It's very possible to make that kind of content. They have an entire library of content that they can train an algorithm on. So I do think it's possible. I do think it is possible that chat GPT or the next version of it can create an avatar like film. Will it do it next week or next year? I don't know, but in the future, 100%. You got to think about what a large language model is. And when you break down what it is, you can feature set a script or movie or a set of movies into a set of features that an algorithm can be trained on. Would you mind just defining a little bit more of what a large language model is? Yeah, a large language model is essentially what machines are trained on in order to uh, execute on some decision, where the algorithm is. What that means, and we're talking about what is it trained on in this large language model. This is language, meaning this is words and text that it's trained on and not images, is that it was learning parts of speech and it was trained on parts of speech or articles that were already on the internet. And this is if we believe that up until 2021, which is what ChatGPT is trained on, If we believe that everything on the internet was human made, then it was trained on human written content. After a lot of training, a lot of iteration, it learns how to execute what it's been trained on repeatedly. So 
when you think about what is language and what is parts of speech, it's grammar, it's nouns, it's verbs. And so it is trained on what is a noun, what is a verb, and what are adjectives. And it's trained on a large language model made of what human beings have contributed to our language. And so it's training on how we speak today and how we put words and sentences together today. And to the point where it is able to mimic it and execute it on what it's learned. Think about how a child learns to walk or how babies learn anything. They learn how to do it, whether or not they understand it, just by mimicking. And so it's mimicking human writing to the point where it's almost indistinguishable. However, there's a certain kind of style that ChatGPT has today where it's almost a little monotone in a sense. Like it's writing is a bit elementary. It almost comes off as like an early college student wrote it. And so I think that at least for the use cases that we're seeing today, this GPT, this large language model has already proven to be very beneficial in the starting of ideas or the kicking off of things. And in the future, will it be able to wholly create things? The next iteration is going to be 570 times bigger than today's model. So just think of the implications there. You know, it's so interesting, you know, so it's not that I'm either like super into AI or not into AI. Like it's not that black and white for me is like, I'm just waiting to see what's happening. But because I have worked with you now on the podcast and you're so into it, I actually have spent a lot more time actually investigating. And so for instance, I just launched my venture firm Divergent Ventures and as a part of that, I've decided to bootstrap as much as possible. And that includes like creating the website, creating the one sheeters and things like that. And so based on your know, feedback about how things were going, I actually have been using ChatGBT. So for instance, I'll go through and create a paragraph or create characteristics of something that I want to say. So for instance, if I, I wanted to figure out like a really nice tagline to put on my website. And so I put in all the things I wanted and I was like, help summarize this in one sentence. And then I just kept regenerating it. And then the tagline I actually got, I was like, oh, this is excellent, actually. This is actually what I was intending on doing. And so what I, I and so that's why I deeply agree with you on this idea of it's for me, it's starting to help unlock my confidence and being able to like just think, oh, well, maybe I can do more of this creative stuff myself. Cause I used to farm out everything. Like so because you know, I'm a public speaker too. So every time I would create a presentation, I would just do the like, basic part of the content explain to my copywriter and to my designer what I wanted, and then they would just create this for me. And on my most recent iteration of all of my decks, I've actually done it myself between using Canva and ChatGBT. And so if you think from you know, your, your larger thesis, which is that the, eventually there's going to be some creative roles that can be taken because of AI, I think it's true. as primarily because I've now experienced it, having gone through and done this part of the process. I want to point out something you said and make a distinction. I do not believe that ChatGPT, let me, let me call it just GPT. ChatGPT is the product that OpenAI has developed, but GPT-3 is really the technology that we're talking about. The distinction I want to make is that I do not believe it's going to take creativity jobs or creative jobs. You are still the creator in this instance. It needs to be prompted. And in this instance, think of ChatGPT and GPT and these large language models as paintbrushes. A very average painter with a paintbrush would paint a very average picture, but an artistic person could potentially paint a masterpiece. And even in the example that you're giving, you still had to give creative direction to that person that designed it. And in that way, that person was merely just your paintbrush. And that's still going to happen. Will these tools, these AI tools eliminate the labor part of creation? Sure. 
It's going to make things really fast. What would have been a team of three is now a team of one. That is absolutely going to happen. But it's not going to take the job of being creative. That is always a skill of the future. And I'm long on that one. Yeah, I'm happy that you clarified that because that is the point. Like, I needed to go through and do that deep soul searching to start to get to the things that were most important to me. So then I could have that assistant help me distill it down into a very nuanced way. Also, if anyone's listened to this podcast, they know I'm verbose, right? So it's always a challenge for me to to get things down to the, the simplest piece. Just because I'm a Southerner and we storytell as we come through. And I think what's really interesting about that, though, is that if you extrapolate that, so we talked about the creative part of this, like AI, creative, all that type of stuff. And so then now we can pivot a little bit to this AI, the restaurant type thing. And it's so interesting because if you look at the Chick fil A commercials, I feel like the Chick fil A commercials are a very fascinating thing. Because, by the way, this is not an endorsement or not an endorsement of Chick-fil-A. I don't want anyone who's a part of the LGBTQ plus community to start sending me tweets saying that I endorse Chick-fil-A. I'm talking about their strategy. As a part of their strategy, they have these commercials where they're talking about their employees having these deep connections with their local communities, right? So the, the employee who helps the single mom, the employee who knows how to do sign language, the employee who noticed the person was having a medical emergency, and that's what their commercials are. And I also, just for full transparency, my very first um paid job, corporate type job was at Chick-fil-A at 14. And that's how we were trained. We were trained to create these like really nice moments for people. And it was very obvious to me even then was their strategies, like creating this like really nice, like family oriented experience. And so then you have on the opposite side of that, the McDonald's and Taco Bell and all these other places who are trying to get to the place where it's completely automated food, um, both food preparation and also food delivery. So McDonald's hasn't gotten to the food preparation part. They're doing the food delivery. There's a pizza startup that was trying to do completely automated pizzas, things like that, which is funny because if you look at any cartoon that makes pizzas, the pizzas always get out of control when it's an automated solution. The pepperoni ends up on the, the ceiling. But I, I saw every time someone says that, I always think of that, the, the pepperoni being on the ceiling. And so so fascinating because... I think to some extent, like, so I also was a store manager at Target, so I've had a lot of jobs, y'all, so to just say that. So I was also a store manager at Target, and I know that Walmart also is trying to automate things, and I know that Amazon, obviously, is also trying to automate things. And the biggest differentiator at Target was we would actually come over and do customer service and be helpful to you and support you. And so people liked working with us because it was really easy to work with us. And so one of the things I think is very fascinating about all of this is like whether it's being a little short-sighted, for instance, in terms of how um, people, in terms of what the differentiator will be in the future for even fast food or any type of restaurant. For the age of big data, we make data-driven decisions. The next iteration to that. And I realized that because I came up in the age of data. We came up around the same time, that 2013, 2011 time when everything was data-driven decision. And I knew that the next iteration to that, that businesses were going to be prioritizing was the automation of that decision-making with that data. That's machine learning. That it labels something, it makes a prediction, and then AI is the execution of some code to do something automatically for you. And here you're taking this, using AI to automate something like making pizzas. And they've tried it before. And a company called Zoom Pizza out of Mountain View, California, raised something like $350 million from SoftBank. And then a year later had to lay off a bunch of people because it doesn't matter if you could perfect the mechanical job of making a pizza, at the end of the day, it was not desirable because nobody actually liked the pizza. Critical uh, thing that needs to be accomplished in product market fit is people want to actually buy that pizza. When you're talking about something like pizza, which is all over the place, 
you the bare minimum muster that you have to pass. It doesn't matter that you can make it with a robot. Nobody buys pizza because a robot made it. That's not a decision factor in anybody's mind. So it's one of those things that is nice to have if you can have it. What is the value of a robot making pizza anyway, or any food making robot is that it's a scalability or efficiency play for the creator, for the business. Meaning McDonald's wants to open up a store, uh, use these things because they want to eliminate the cost of labor. It is not a benefit to me, the customer. So one thing that I have to say about the large franchises, technically they farm out the cost to the franchisees. So I've never actually really understood why the McDonald's and Taco Bell actually care about this. To me, it seems like it should be all the new restaurants. Like instead of doing it like McDonald's and Taco Bell has done it, Maybe you actually own all the restaurants and you don't have as many franchises. But just, I just wanted to point that out because it's, it's always been something that's a little weird to me. And from a franchisee perspective, it also seems like it would be you know expensive over time to maintain all this equipment. Mm-hmm. Sure. I want to get into that. I think from McDonald's perspective, they're looking at this as we are, as a company, as a business, as a real estate company that's in the business of making this a desirable franchise – we should be investing in the ways that make this a viable business. Meaning if our franchises are having a problem keeping employees, it is in our best interest as a brand to solve this problem for them, to make sure that McDonald's is the next franchise that somebody wants to buy and it's not Panera Bread or something like that. So I do think that it is in their best interest to figure this out for their franchises because they are a conglomerate and the franchises maybe one or two doesn't have the capital to figure this problem out. Problem with it though, is that very little value to the customer. Me as a customer, I do not choose to buy food from a robot. That's not how I make decisions. So you have to make sure as a business, this CapEx, what we call capital expenditure, which is not cheap, right? Um, That the quality of the output of what you invest in has to meet the standards of the customer who's buying it. And that's really hard to achieve, unfortunately, in this business. I don't, for the investors that are out there and the startups that are out there, I am very long on AI. I made that bet years ago in my career that AI was going to be the future. And so I doubled down on it. Um, I am not bullish on AI in the restaurants and food because that limitation that exists in um, AI trained models and again, you can even look at ChatGPT as an example. It is only trained on data up until 2021. So it cannot answer anything on a current event basis. It can't answer anything about today or tomorrow. That is the same limitation of, let's say, a McDonald's wants to put in a $100,000 machine to make French fries. One change in your menu. What downstream impact does that have? on how you run your business, every little change you do. The benefit of having people is that they can make decisions in the moment. Something spills on the floor, they know they can clean it up. What is a robot going to do if it hasn't been trained on these unique situations? The other part of that is the other company that's now trying to do this again is Stella Pizza, two engineers from SpaceX with a lot of knowledge, wanted to put all of their knowledge into making a robot making pizza. So many problems to solve. This to me is, and I think they they recently raised something like $16 million. As an investor, these are the things you, you do need to be looking at is robots now need a different kind of skill set to maintain them. And that's not the same labor pool as the person that can make fries. And so you need to ask yourself, what are you going to do as a business? The cost, not just after the CapEx, 
a pizza restaurant who sells $3 slices of pizza, whatever. He has to invest in this robot, invest in the maintenance, and invest in the kind of talent pool that can maintain this robot. Where are these people coming from? And how much is it going to cost? How many pizzas do you need to sell to make that profitable? Well, it goes back to the infrastructure problem, right? Because mm-hmm. like you you have a point. There's not enough talent to even maintain the things that I think that they're planning on building. And imagine if you have a McDonald's. This, I can't remember. I remember there was an article I read that was something like the average you know, revenue for the McDonald's across the country was somewhere in the mid six figures, right? Even at like the lowest tier. Yeah. Like, yeah, they're like really whatever. So imagine if a McDonald's machine goes down. And so again, so talking about my previous jobs, I was a store manager at Target. If the Pizza Hut oven went down, we would have to go find like the number for the one company that they would allow to do it. And then we got yelled at all day and we didn't usually hit our sales goals if the Pizza Hut machine went down. So there is some there, there's a lot of impact that you there's a lot of importance of what you just said there. But secondly, folks, know I'm from Mississippi. One of the main jobs that many people in Mississippi have are retail and restaurant jobs. Right. So if you're going down to Mississippi, chances are. They're not going to be interested in you down there. So the other part of this is if you don't figure out ways to uh, make this work, right? Because I I think that generally speaking, a lot of companies are like, well, if I could just make it work in four or five key areas or regions or whatever, it's going to like that will be sufficient. I'm not sure if I agree with that because I think that resource constraints are going to continue to be a major issue across the board for basically forever, whether it's resources around talent, whether it's resources around the materials, whether it's resources around the people who are building these products, right? It's just going to be an issue. And I don't understand the short-sightedness of focusing on this when there's that bigger problem that probably is the billion-dollar idea that could actually support this next idea. It's kind of the Jetsons. They probably figured out how to do flying cars before they figured out how to make the food appear in a little machine. That's all I'm saying. Right. right. There's a little bit of free advice and product market fit. There is a place for this type of technology, and it's wherever you have a discrete advantage, meaning where there is no better alternative than your pizza-making robot. And that's in places where the audience is captured, like a stadium, and where they just want to get back to their seat and efficiency and time is a priority for the proprietor there or and for the customer, right? Like whoever eats... Like one of the things I never do is eat at an event. If I have to go to a show, a concert, whatever, I never eat at that concession stand. It's a horrible experience. The food sucks and it's overpriced. So I'm not a customer there, but... Apparently, there are some people who do it, and they have to mosey on through that line, and they wait in line, and things like that, and they want to get back to the show. This is where I see some technology like this um, working. You clearly don't have standards. You're eating the pizza at this place anyway. So, you know, what is your complaint? Well, and actually, if you you kind of extrapolate that out, like, I remember when I was in college, uh, having a a self- like making pizza restaurant thing at like 10 o'clock at night probably would have been very effective as well. Exactly. You know, because I just needed something to eat and all the, all the places closed much earlier. So, you know, having said that, let's talk about people who have an advantage and then squander it. And so what I'm talking about now is SBF, the CEO founder of FTX. And it's so interesting because I think I sent you the article and it was like, basically it was like, is SBF, made off was basically what it said and i was just like so one i'm watching the netflix documentary on bernie madoff 
And it's so much worse. Like for some reason, I did not conceptually understand. Maybe it's because that, it was 15 years ago, right? So that yeah. when the main thing happened, it's around the 2008 crash is when all like all this started coming out. And then the actual case was resolved many years later, of course, like it was many years later, the case was resolved. And it just kind of like, it just didn't stick because I was still younger. It was before I... It, it, like I remember it being bad. I remember how much it affected so many people. So Memphis, Tennessee has a very large Jewish population. And from what I understood, just being there, a lot of the people I knew, like a lot of their parents and family had invested with Bernie Madoff too. So I understood that it was like very significant and it hurt people that I knew. And that was a big deal. It's like watching the documentary, It was it's such a large pyramid Ponzi scheme. It, like legitimately, they created a second floor to just create false information, right? And that was their actual intention. I think in contrast, SBF was always a person who didn't care about compliance or any rules or creating any systems of accountability. I mean, he literally was playing video games and they thought it was cool instead of asking like, why aren't you not taking this meeting seriously because we're trying to give you billions of dollars. Very strange. Like I, at the very least, like I would have showered that day and maybe put on like my better t-shirt, right? <laughs> oh no, like, you know? not this guy. So, and then also Madoff, I, I really do think he was propped up by the fact that other people, because if you actually were to look at the documentary, I didn't realize how many large hedge funds and other investors had put their money there. And they were, many of them were able to get their money out before the shit really hit the fan. Which again, if I were, if I was some people, I would ask like, why did they not have to give up a little mm. bit of what they had? Like that's a little surprising. At least Madoff cleaned up a bit. Played the part. You didn't have to embarrass people so much. It's a false comparison to compare SBF to Madoff. I think it's too nice. He is the Borat of venture capital. Yeah. This guy was playing a game. And I really do believe he was laying in bed 100%. with that chick Ellison and was like, watch what I'm about to do. It was one of those things. Here's one thing I know about men. They love to show off. They love attention. And some of the things he was doing mm -hmm. was purely a dick swinging move. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to sit in this gaming chair, tell these guys what I'm not about to do. And they're just going to give me money. Anyway, he was, this was pillow talk with him and his girl. His strategy was more, <laughs> it's very Borat. It's very, very Borat. Well, and I think added to that. So, like, so when FTX was first starting to become popular, I obviously like, so I'm always on the hunt for like either a new job community. and because the thing is, is that you're always looking for what is going to be the coolest freaking thing I can build in my career. Right. And so FTX, when it was first coming up, the way people were talking about it is like, let me, let me investigate. Let me find out. Maybe this is a company I need to network my way into working at. And so I started looking though at the leadership team. And I couldn't understand how a single one of those people were qualified to be a leader of an organization of this size, right? And, and then what I mean of size is that it's not the number of people, it's about the number of assets they had control over. And I was just like, you know, coming from my background, you know, working at companies like Apple and Netflix and Sprout Social, you know, it, it, we weren't dealing with people's money in the same way. We were primarily dealing with people's information and the types of systems that we put in place to make sure that we were completely compliant and we could be so respectful of people's information is, is so complex. That I'm sure it would blow some people's minds, like some of the things that we did. And that's just about people's information. That's not people's money. And so people who were working with me, so these are some of the best legal experts. These are some of the best financial experts. These are some of the best governmental experts who were looking at different governments and provisions on how we could be compliant. It took dozens of people for us to, to even hope to do this effectively. 
And there's like five people at this company at the time when I first started looking at them. And not a single person had anything remotely close to the experience necessary to put in place what I think are reasonable or compliance mechanisms. And so, you know, not only is he the Borat of, you know, of, of venture, Sequoia and some of these other people need to go ahead and they need to go out to the back in the ship and they need to go ahead and get that behind whooping, right? Because I just don't- Are they un- Giuliani? Are they the Giuliani? The- yeah, they just kept rubber stamping. Take their pants down? Yes, yeah. <laughs> It is. They really are. Because the thing is, it's like, again, if I could do, if I could figure that out just on a LinkedIn search, like just going through and looking at the employees on LinkedIn, any reasonable human should have been able to do the exact same thing. Right. And so I I feel like for me personally, like, you know, uh, SBF showed us exactly who he was from the very beginning. And the fact that he already has a sub stack tweeting because I guess he wants to monetize his sub stack. Like, I love you. I was like, because you are like, you know what? Let's talk about Clubhouse. Yeah. Yeah. So, so another one of those interesting things. So, obviously, going from SBF, you know, SBF Substack made me think of pivots, right? And so, for some reason, mm-hmm. I don't know why. Like, so I just be on the internet sometimes and just like looking at one thing. As you should be. And then like something else comes up, and someone and I saw this like website. It was like shortcuts, formerly Clubhouse, and I was like, what? And so I just started looking through. And I was like, oh my gosh, Clubhouse. So if if y'all remember, we did an episode on Clubhouse many, many moons ago. And we were talking about whether there's a future or product. And we said it was a future. Well, apparently they agreed to because they have now pivoted into this shortcuts product, which seems to be like- They pivoted into a different direction. We didn't predict any of these pivots. It's like, like, so this new shortcuts is basically like some sort of like Jira type of competitor, or at least it seems like a Jira competitor because it allows product engineering teams to do the end-to-end work to launch products or whatever. And it was like so fascinating to me because I was just like- what learnings did you get from Clubhouse that made you think that Jira was the way to go? And so, and so for people who may not understand what I mean by that statement, when you are, when you're first starting a company, like when you're first trying to figure out product market fit, most of it's just an experiment. You start for hypothesis, you do an experiment to see if customers actually respond to that. And then whatever the response is, is your learning, right? And so then based on your learning, you make strategic decisions on how to move forward. I'm just trying to figure out like how like how were you this repository for people having conversations and then you use that to then become Jira. I don't know. I've got two hypotheses here. Uh, theories it's um one was this is their slack remember slack originally was a game and slack was this internal tool that they built for themselves. Maybe. The other is they had a hackathon. This was the best idea they came up with. You know, my other thing is I couldn't find any data on how much money they had left or how much money they're saying they had left or whether they raised any more money. Because I, because the other thing is they raised so much money before. Like, I'm I'm hoping, like, it would be very curious to me if, like, they just, like, maybe as soon as the, like, really offensive people got on their platform, they just started, they just stopped spending money and they were like, well, we're going to have to make a move. And so that's why, and so maybe that's how they they did the hackathon because they're like, we still have all these tens of millions of dollars. And we need to reallocate it somewhere. So where are we going to reallocate it to? I want to know how or if they changed their leadership team in any way. I mean, they were recruiting people, you know, from adjacent type of industries. Yeah. So social media type people, what do they have to do with 
product management delivery. So I did take a look at this. Productivity systems. So some of the people that I saw who had left like media companies and social media companies and stuff like that, when Clubhouse was really hot, I had, I remembered them. So I actually started looking down the employee list and many of those people don't work there anymore. So I do think that you know, some of the people who had come in very specifically for the Clubhouse out of it have, I think that it's likely many of those people did leave and now you just have the people who are left over. And actually that's a, that, so that's actually a really interesting conversation because I, so as a part of my venture journey, I try to have as many conversations with other VCs as possible to talk about these things. And one of the VCs that I was talking to recently, she was talking about a company that they uh, first put money into and it started off as a, a finance product. And now it's mm-hmm. like a entertainment platform. And I was just thinking to myself, I was just like, what would like as a VC, Right. Like it's a different thing when you've put in a few hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars or even I might even go up to like five million dollars into a company. But the amount of money that was put into Clubhouse, like imagine what that room looked like when they brought in their VCs and they were like, by the way, we're going to pivot to being Jira. And it totally makes sense. Like I, I just I just think about how my heart would stop like like uh, like mm-hmm. are we going to get a single dollar back from this deal? Right. Oh, well, you know what? There is a lot to be said about B2B is a better investment today than B2C. Um, yeah. And so that may be the pivot that their board was asking for. Uh, someone said to me pretty eloquently, when you've built hired businesses on making ads and things like that, free services, it's going to be very hard to make money off of them in a recession. And that's kind of a good point. So you know what's so interesting about that? So there's this tool, and so this is a little bit of an aside, but I actually think this is very interesting because I had this debate with someone else the other day. So there's this tool called PandaDoc, right? So again, I'm setting up a business. So I was, I was evaluating various e-signature tools. So, you know, you have DocuSign, yeah. you have HoloSign, you have this new yeah. one, PandaDoc. And PandaDoc gives you unlimited signatures and i'm just like and so that's a free as far as i can tell it's supposed to be free forever and then they have these tiers that kind of go up from there and i was just thinking to myself i was like how are you going to change someone's behavior when you gave them free signatures for months and months or potentially years right and then like why do you want to do that literally i just kept coming back to is like i i understand like maybe maybe if they had done like five or ten or twenty a month that would have made more sense to me than like unlimited. That's crazy. And it's like, increasingly, I am concerned with the, the, the focus solely on growth, right? Because it has to be scalable and practical growth, right? Like, I don't understand how you convert, like, cause you have to be able to convert people. Like, and that's a big issue. Hold another episode. We will do it. Yeah. Yeah. That conversation about the cold start problem and how you start these behaviors that are very hard. So I just wrote an article about it. Um, why rapid food delivery was doomed to fail. You created a really bad behavior by incentivizing people um, by giving them free coupons and stuff for 15 minutes. That was, it was something that you couldn't maintain. I do think that it's a bad strategy to over incentivize people on a behavior. It's going to be really hard to get them off of that behavior when you need to wean them off being a sugar daddy. No, no sugar daddy can tell a sugar baby. Sorry, not this month. That's not your sugar baby anymore. She's going to the next one. Exactly. Like this is historical. <laughs> yeah, and you know it goes. It, and it, it goes to like even so, like exchanges, right? So I have a buddy who works at Gemini, and so he's had to be a part of the team that's figuring out how they're going to lay off. It, it's something like they laid off like 
30% or something like that of their employees because they, they were stuck in the FTX stuff too, where, and so they have a $1.2 billion deficit that they have to fill. The thing is, this is one of the most better run exchanges out there, right? Because they were much more practical. They had many more mechanisms in place. But when someone's literally lying about how many assets they have, there's not much you can do there, right? Other than go take them to the shed again. The shed is going to be very popular for some people. And so I do think that there's something to be said about like those exchanges incentivize people by giving these crazy rates, which were unachievable, especially when you think about the fact that the whole point is that it was supposed to be decentralized finance. Like, why are you trying to bring together thousands or millions or billions of users and centralize their finances? Like you were doing the exact that's opposite. Capitalism. Because capitalism only succeeds when you control the market. This is why I was never bullish on crypto and this idea of decentralized. You cannot win a market being decentralized. Capitalism has already proven that. This is why they fight for monopolies. This is why we have the laws in place to fight that because all they want to do is capture more ground. And you are fighting against that really large incentive to control things. Yeah. It's so interesting that you say that because I was just reading an article this morning about Figma and uh, Adobe and how that deal may not go through. And I actually, I would be so excited if it didn't go through because one of the things So Adobe is a much better product today than it was a year ago or two years ago or five years ago because Figma exists, right? It also is better because Canva exists too. And so if there's anything that we can do, like innovation only happens through friction, right? If you're in a boxing ring and like you about to get that one hook and you about to get knocked out, you go into that survival mode and you're like, no, I'm going to survive. That's what we need to create those circumstances for corporations all the time. Because that's how you actually get to innovation. Because again, I'm trying to get to flying cars, right? I'm trying to get to like teleportation. I'm trying to get to that stuff that's like the stuff of imagination. But we can't get there if we can't even have a real conversation about the fact that you should be making better products. No, everybody's trying to create their own DMV. You see why the DMV is never going to be incentivized to create an a relaxing and inviting experience? Why can't the DMV put a coffee shop in there? Why can't they put massage chairs in there? Why? You need them. They don't need you. And that's what every, that's the advantage that everybody tries to get. DMV status. Thank you so much for listening to the Drops Podcast. We love having you. We love your feedback. Please do connect with us across social media. We are the Drops Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And we also have a great email, thedropspodcast at gmail.com. You can send in any questions that you have, and we definitely would love to answer them on the podcast. Feel free to ask just about anything because we have experienced a ton of different things. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Drops Podcast.